0: Well, I know I taught in here, I don't know, a couple months ago. Bob, when was it? Bob would remember. <laughs> He's just like, <laughs> that was like a low point in the week for Bob, but uh, but uh, but I can't remember what we talked about when we were in here, but uh, when Joel asked me to, to fill in this time, um, I just finished uh, John 17 in the, the youth and the college group. we actually been going through the whole upper room discourse for the last year and a half in, in both of those groups, and so... This is what um, we've been immersed in. Uh, so if you have any children in the youth or college, this is, this is what's been going on on Wednesday and Thursday night. And so we just finished uh, in the college group about two, three weeks ago in the youth group last week. And so I thought, well, I would love to to share a little bit. I mean, it's not like we're going to be able to share it all. And I could do this big overview. But there was, there was one thing at the very end, um, as we were fin- close to the very end of this prayer of Christ, that I just thought would be... Uh, not only, um, I mean, it was very beneficial in, in my own life. Uh, very, it just helped me to to gain uh, a, a lot more perspective and understanding of of God's perspective on unity in the church and on uh, the unity that Christ prays for. But then I felt like, well, as a church, all the things we've walked through over the last couple of years, this would be a very important topic uh, and in a, a very important uh, place where the the word can instruct us and the word can refine our thinking the word can help us to see you know what glorifies the lord and lord willing uh continue to to unify us as the body but um, let me uh let me pray for us real quick before we begin just ask the lord to help us to understand his Word, because if there's anything that we know is is we on our own apart from the holy spirit cannot understand the things of god we need the spirit to help us to understand his truth and to know his word and his will and his ways so let's pray together So, the the, the title of, of the lesson or the topic that we're going to talk about is Unity in Jesus Christ. And, and like I said, this is just uh, one of uh, the, the parts of Christ's prayer in John 17 that we looked at uh, in the college and the youth group. Um, but John 17 as a whole, um, I don't know if you've read John 17 recently or if you know much about John 17, but this is a prayer of Christ to God the Father. And this is moments before he crosses over uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's betrayed by Judas, and the the Romans come and take him, and he's taken to the cross. And so these are some of the last words that Christ speaks. These are some of the last words. These are the last words uh, we know of, other than the the, the words in the garden, you know, as the disciples are falling asleep, and he tells them to pray, and all that sort of stuff. These are the last words, and last words of instruction that Christ gives to uh, the eleven. Now, Judas has already left. He's going to betray him. The 11 are there with him. They've been in this upper room, and Christ has been preparing them with truth about what's coming down the road in the next few minutes, over the next few weeks, and over the basically from then until 2018, right now, uh, what's going to happen. Uh, And he keeps telling them, listen to the words that I am speaking. It's the words he speaks that are going to not only comfort them, but are going to increase their faith as they watch these things play out before them. Because everything that's about to happen to him and to them would look like God has failed, the word has failed. I mean, they expected the Messiah to last forever, to bring peace, to to rule and to reign forever with a rod of iron and righteousness and justice and all that sort of stuff. And he's about to go die on the cross. And so he's trying to point them back to the word and say, this was in the word. This must happen first. This is the way that God ordained it. And he even said, I mean, even Judas' betrayal is for all Scripture to be fulfilled. So it's, it's, he's perfectly in control. This is perfectly the plan of God. Nothing is going wrong during these last few minutes, but the disciples are having a hard time seeing that. And, and we do the same thing, right? Every time things get hard, every time we walk through trials or suffering, every time we can't see the end, it, like, like we can see the end, anytime. you know. I mean, when things are going good, we feel like this is going to end well, right? When things go bad, we feel like it's going to end bad. But if we trust in what he says, then we know no matter what the circumstance, it's going to end with good for those who are called by his name, for those who are chosen by him, who love him. And that good is defined as he will use the circumstance to sanctify you, to change you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, so that you reflect Christ and that he uses your life to do his will, to find his children, and to sanctify and edify the church. That is always what he is doing every circumstance in your life, no matter how you define it, good, bad, uh, wicked, uh, right, uh, the Lord is going to use those things in the life of his children to draw us to him, to make us like him. And, and he's going to use it, honestly, to to unify us as the body of Christ. When you look at John 17, um, I don't think I put these quotes up there, but in John 17, is a special chapter of the Bible because you have God the Son praying to God the Father. And... Christ prayed to God a lot, but very rarely do we have any of the content written down in the Word of God. I mean, we know he goes off at night to pray for entire nights sometimes and stuff like that, but he usually leaves the disciples and goes and does that on his own in secret. But here, we are able to see into uh, the mind of Christ. We hear the words of Christ. We can see the will of the Father. This is something that, that, that we would have no ability to understand or know except for the fact that that Christ allowed the 11 to be present as he prayed to the father and then through the power of the spirit that he sends after the ascension he allowed John to recall these things to bring them to remembrance and John wrote them down inspired by the spirit of god so that we have the words of Jesus Christ to God the Father and we're able to see in just a tiny little glimpse what Christ wills and what he prays for both the eleven presently and for all those who would come after them, which would be you and I, if you believe in Jesus Christ and follow him. In other words, we have a little taste of the intercessory work that Jesus Christ does at the right hand of God the Father uh, forever. That's what he's doing right now. In Romans 8, we see that Christ intercedes for us, that he sends the Spirit within us to intercede within us, even when we don't know how to pray, that he would pray the will of God, he would be doing the things within us that, that, that we need to do, and, and he's, he's taking care of us through his Spirit, and Christ intercedes from heaven knowing the full will of God. Actually, if you go read Romans 8, and I can't remember if it's in the notes today or not, but Romans 8, 26 to in there, 30-something, uh, but Betty talks about the fact that he puts the Spirit within us. The Spirit within us is always interceding for us. With, with prayers deeper than our own understanding. And that's not talking about some weird you know, prayer language that we see in the charismatic church. It's talking about the intercessory work of the Spirit of God within us. And it's Christ who fully knows the mind of the Spirit within us that intercedes basically to instruct the Spirit and to, to make sure that our life turns out the way God wants it to through His intercession for us. And it's Christ who fully knows the mind and the will of God that's interceding God's will. In other words... If you're a believer, you're wrapped up in this Trinitarian work every day of your life so that the Father's will will be done in your life through the intercessory work of Christ, the intercession of the Holy Spirit within you, and God makes sure that that happens. And that is the context of those verses that we read where where it says that all things will work out for good for those who love him, for those who are called by his name. The reason it's going to work out for good is because you're in the hands of God. And Christ is interceding for you. And he's put his spirit within you. And there's no way it can't work out for good because he guarantees that it works out for good. And then he defines that good as he will make you like Christ. But all that being said, John 17 gives us insight into his intercessory work, which is unbelievable. A lot of godly men through history have talked about John 17 in a special way. J.C. Ryle said this is the most wonderful prayer that has ever been prayed on earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones called John 17 one of the richest, most sublime statements to be found anywhere, even in the scriptures themselves. Uh, John MacArthur said, this chapter is unparalleled in scripture. It is unique among all the portions of scripture because it is the prayer of our Lord, the Son of God, to the Father. It deserves careful attention. In all honesty, one could be lost for a lifetime in this chapter. The words are simple enough and direct enough, but the truths are really beyond comprehension. The best we can do is touch the edges of these great realities that are in this chapter. And then John Knox, uh, as he was dying, wanted his wife to read this and this alone as he died and went to be with the Lord. These were the last words that he wanted to hear in this present life as he moved on to be with the Lord. So, I mean, these are some, some great men of the faith, and they all look at this chapter as a very unique uh, portion of scripture. So like I said, we're only looking at a, a piece of it today, and we're going to specifically look at John 17, 20 through 23. And, uh, and this comes, you know what, now we're going to read it, and then we'll, we'll look at this little part together, because it's just one chapter, and this is the prayer of Christ. So open to John 17, let's read it together, and then we're going to look specifically at these verses at the very end. So Jesus, they've left the upper room. He's left the upper room with his disciples. He's either walking through Jerusalem, talking to them, and either stops and prays this prayer or prays as he walks. Wherever they are, it's before they've actually walked out of Jerusalem uh, and then uh, crossed over uh, the, the ravine of the Kidron into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and having spoken all these things to the disciples, telling them what's about to happen uh, with the crucifixion, his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and all that, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I no longer am in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of the 11, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you love me May be in them, and I in them. That's good. I mean, that, that's there's so much there, and I want to just go. I mean, as I even was reading, I was like, "Oh, we got to talk about that. We got to talk about that." But it's just there's so much good stuff there. But I want to I want to specifically focus on unity in this. Uh, You see him speak about unity a lot, and and just in this prayer. And if you look at the preceding chapters, he talks about unity a lot in the preceding chapters. This is obviously something on the Lord's mind, something that's very important to Jesus Christ, the unity of the church. And so today I want to look at uh, a couple of aspects of unity. And really, honestly, we're just going to look at verses 20 and 21, but 22 and 23 sum up the whole thing. But these are the verses we're going to look at. Here at the very end of that prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may be in us. And then he gives the purpose statement here. Why does he want unity? So that the world may believe that you sent me. He says the same thing in a different way in 22 and 23. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory there is the Holy Spirit. And we won't go deep into that, but just understand that in the context of what's going on there, he's talking about the Spirit that God has given to Christ. Christ is going to give to the church. Uh, and here's another purpose so that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, and again, a purpose that they may be perfected in unity. And here's why there is unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So two times he talks about unity, and then two times he tells the purpose. And both times, the purpose is so that the world, those outside of the church, would see the unity of the body of Christ, and the children of God that are in the world would be drawn to Christ through the unity they see expressed in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? In other words, the unity of the church is evangelistic. God is going to use the unity of the church to find his children that are in the world and to draw his children to himself through the faithful. Uh, consistent unity that He creates in the church. And that is a huge thing in the eyes of God. But the first thing I want you to see today, and this is, this is awesome, and I, can't, I couldn't miss this part because this is one of my favorite parts of this entire prayer, is the fact that Jesus always prays for all believers. Um, I said in Romans 8 you see this, but what's amazing here is You know, very rarely are you and I mentioned in the Bible, but here specifically is maybe the only verse, if one of just a few verses, where we're actually there. He's talking to the 11. He's praying for the 11. Everything has been towards the 11. Not that that doesn't mean that that this isn't how Christ prays for us as well, but here he specifically mentions those who would believe in him through the words that the 11 would continue to speak or write. In other words... The New Testament that you hold in your hand is the result of the, 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 the disciples uh, writing down the, the, the inerrant word of God so that the children of God would have it throughout history for the last 2,000 years. And so he's praying for all those who would believe in him uh, through their word. And it's just neat to see that Jesus continually prays for all believers all the time. And he has even had his word written down for us so that we would come to know him and believe in him, know how to follow him and please him, and to be one of his disciples, one of his children. John MacArthur says, "Christ's intercession for us," which began with this prayer 2,000 years ago, continues to this day since he always lives to make intercession for us. And we don't have time to talk about the intercession of Christ and, and where in the Bible it talks about it and what all it means. But really quickly, here's three of the, I feel like the main verses when it talks about Christ' interceding for us. Like MacArthur just quoted in Hebrews 7.25, it says Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. So in other words, Christ has that position, power, and authority to save them since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the intercession of Christ is linked to our coming to Christ and linked to our salvation in Christ. In Romans 8.26-34, and again, this is just part of that, but it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit is within us. God puts His Spirit within us. The Spirit of Christ is within us, interceding for us, within us, helping us, controlling us, causing us to believe, causing us to follow Him. But then, behind the Spirit, he who searches the hearts, that's Christ, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because He, Christ, intercedes for the saints, according to the will of God. And That's what I was saying earlier. God's will is always done. Nothing ever stops or, or alters or detours God's will. It always happens. He even takes evil, flips it on its head, and uses it for good in this present life. And so God's will is always accomplished. Christ is interceding for that will to, be, to happen. And then within the, 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 the bodies and the hearts and the lives of all of his children, he's placed his spirit to know the will of God so that that is accomplished. So no matter what you do, no matter what your faults are, no matter how you stumble, fall, and fail, He's constantly causing you to be more refined and to be changed into His image. As we sin, He convicts us, He draws us back, He changes us. We repent of that sin, we get back up, and He uses that to cause us to become more like Christ. And in our faithfulness, He does the same thing. So we're in this intercessor, this intercessory work of the Trinity. And what's, I just love this part too, and again, this is just a real quick snapshot. But in Isaiah 53, when Isaiah is prophesying of the Messiah to come, one of the things that Messiah is going to do is intercede for the transgressors. And if you know anything about Scripture, God does not pray for the world. There is no intercession, when we talk about intercession like this, for the world. All right? He prays for His children. He intercedes for His children. All things are working out for good for His children. Those are not promises to the world. God loves the world. God sends the rain on the righteous and the wicked and all of that stuff. But He does not intercede for the good of of the world. All of his children that are in the world will be drawn out of the world and brought to him. He knows all of them before the foundation of the world. All those given to Christ belong to God before they even came to Christ. So he takes care of his children. But his intercession is for his children. And that's a very special thing. Because that helps you to see that no matter who you are, what you've done, what you know up here that no one else knows, and what's coming down the pike in our lives, Christ will always intercede for you. The Spirit within you will always do the work of Christ within you. And God's will will happen in your life. And God's will is that you be made more into the image of Christ. And that you be together with Christ. That you be made spotless and blemished without any wrinkle, any sin, any such thing. So that God can give you to the Son as his perfect unblemished bride of the marriage of the Lamb. And then the Son can give you back to the Father as he returns all things to his Father in, his, in, in, in love of his Father. And so, so we're, we're, we're just mixed up in this love that God the Father has to God the Son. And God's not going to mess that up. And that's what's awesome about the love of God. He's always interceding for all believers. Um, now, all that being said... Uh, he says uh, he, he prays on those who will believe in him through his word. To believe here, it means to put your trust in or put your faith in. It's an ongoing pattern in our life. Now, and again, I know in this church we, we teach this very clearly, Lord willing, you understand this, but your, your belief is not a one-time event. You know, it's not some prayer you prayed or some decision you made or some, some sort of, uh, a, of a benchmark moment in your life where, where all of a sudden you went from, uh, you know, now, now you, you, you've changed. You know, now, now I'm not saying there's not those moments. But in our culture, we have like, you know, well, on this day, I prayed this prayer and signed this card, or on this day, I went through confirmation, or on this day, you know, it's like we can, we we think that we can have these mechanical means of coming to Christ. But those who believe in him, those who believe in him, that's evidenced by a daily, ongoing, habitual pattern in your life. It's an ongoing trust in what he says and not what you think. It's an ongoing action of doing his will and acting according to his character, not your natural character. It's a transformation of what you were into what he is. And so those who believe are evidenced by the way that they speak, the way that they think, the way that they live their lives. Again, not that you'll be perfect, but even in your sin, there will be conviction, repentance, and a change. Does that make sense? And so belief here is not talking about a one-time moment. It's talking about a lifetime. It's an ongoing uh, action. And so they believe in his word, through, um, uh, in the words of, of Christ, through the, the written word of the apostles. And so that's what's wonderful about the, the, the word of God. It's the Word of God that causes us to believe. It's the Word of God that is the substance of our belief. And it's the Word of God that causes us to be changed into the image of Christ. And it's the Word of God that unifies us. When we talk about unity, it's the Word of God that is the foundational substance of our unity. There is no true unity on anything else outside of Scripture. It's the work of the Spirit through the Word of God that is going to cause our unity. If you, if you disregard doctrine and disregard Scripture and try to unify on some sort of vague principle... That's a man-made, mechanical, false peace and false unity. True unity comes from digging deep into the word and submitting completely to the word. So that those who are humble and submissive are shown through their obedience. And there is unity in that. Does that make sense? The unity comes through submission to the word. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, that's why I put these verses up there. When he's going into the church in Ephesus after elders have defected from the church and caused all kinds of discord in the church, and Paul sends Timothy in there and says, look for these kind of men to be elders in that church. And he lists all of that stuff out. But he tells Timothy, That it's the word of God that not only fixes the church, but unifies the church and helps you to find those who should be leading the church. It's the word of God that unifies. He tells Timothy to retain the standard of sound words that you heard from me, to guard the treasure that has been entrusted to you, to present yourself. So here's the character of Timothy approved to God that's not ashamed. And then he tells him what to do, accurately handling the word of truth. It's the word that is the most important. To make sure that it is guarded, that it is treasured, that it is retained, that the standard stays the same, that it is accurately handled. He says, you've known these sacred writings since you've been a, a child. And he says, and they give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scriptures inspired by God. And then for the purpose of teaching, reproving, correcting, training, in righteousness. That's sanctifying. Sanctifying the body. For the purpose that each man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. You take out the word, you miss the entire work. We must retain the high standard of the accurate understanding of His true Word for there to be any true unity. And the more accurately we handle the Word, the more intense the unity of the body will be. Because that's God's prescription. And that's what He does through the power of His Spirit. The existence and the consistence of the church throughout the ages is established by the prayer of Christ and the Word of God to this day. It's not just the fact that you read the Bible and you have a good hermeneutic. It's also the Spirit's work within you that you're completely dependent upon for your hermeneutic to even work. Anybody can understand a language and anyone can understand context and anyone can read these words, but only the person filled with the Holy Spirit can discern the mind and the will of God to the point that they're broken through these words, see the power of God in these words and follow Christ because of these words. Does that make sense? Now, with the Spirit, the hermeneutic definitely matters. But minus the Spirit, it doesn't matter how you read the Word. Because you can't discern the mind and the will of God. MacArthur goes on to say, All of the church's evangelistic success is a result of the Lord's request in verse 20 for those who would believe in the future. This request guaranteed the successful establishment of the church and the success of its evangelistic ministry from apostolic times to the present. I will build my church, Jesus declared, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In other words, if you came to the Lord, that's because Christ was interceding for you from the day that you were born, actually from the foundation of the world. If, you're, if you remain in the Lord, it's only because Christ is interceding for you. And if you one day see the Lord, it is because Christ is interceding for you. None of us should be so arrogant, proud, and, 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 and naive to think that we would ever have come to Christ on our own. God prayed for you to come and put his spirit within you to cause you to believe so that you would come to him. And we cannot be arrogant once we come to him to think that we would remain. Not a single person in this room, me included, would ever remain in Christ. You would not faithfully follow him, you would not be made more like him, and you would not persevere to the end except for Christ's interceding for you and will guarantee it. And none of us would be glorified or sanctified. None of us would enter heaven apart from the intercession of Christ. We are all dependent upon the intercession of Christ. And it should bring us joy and thankfulness that we have a Savior that never sleeps and never slumbers and always prays from heaven for His people and guarantees not only their good in this present life, but their eternal good and guarantees that they will see Him because He loses none of His sheep, right? Right? That is a a wonderful thing and a wonderful comfort. So, Christ is always interceding for us. God's will is always done, right? The Spirit is guaranteeing it, the intercessory prayer of Christ is guaranteeing it, and God is guaranteeing it. So what does Christ pray for? Well, we just read a lot of stuff, but one of the things that he prays for, that he is very insistent upon and means a ton to God and to Christ, is the unity of all believers. It is Jesus that unifies all believers. And we're going to look at just this verse pretty much, and this is, this is all we'll look at today. But he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me. I am in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Here's what we're going to see. Jesus unifies all believers with one another. Jesus unifies all believers with God. And Jesus unifies all believers for the purpose of revealing himself to the world, who he is. So, all that being said, the first thing we want to look at in this verse is that Jesus unifies all believers with one another. This is the main point of all the unity talk here in John 7, 21 to 23, is that he's unifying us together with one another as the body of Christ. He intercedes for us purposefully so that, the purpose clause is so that, they may all be one. So the church is united in Christ, and we've been united together in Christ from Pentecost up until, what's today? May twenty. 20- something, 2018, like seven, 27, all right? So for, for almost 2,000 years, uh, the church has been unified in Christ. Now, it's easy to look around with your, your eye and see tangibly that the church is just in a mess, right? You got denominations everywhere. You got people fighting people everywhere within the denominations, outside of the denominations. Then you got all this silly ecumenical stuff where we're trying to unify the church under some like I said, vague doctrine or vague sentence or or just nothing. Let's just love, you know, one word, you know, and don't define that because we will divide again, you know. And so just get, all the things that you see are a reproach to the name of Christ. In the name of the church, they're, 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 they're doing the very opposite of what the Lord wills. But what you ought to understand as a Christian, you should see this in your own life in and, and the same way as you uh, see it in in, the, in this church, is that all who... Claim his name or not his, right? And all that goes under the title of church is not the church. And within this universal mess that says it is from God, there is a remnant. There's always a remnant. In the mess of Israel, there was the true Israel. And in the mess of the church that you can see with your eye, there's the true church. And the true church is unified. The true church is always unified. The true church remains unified no matter how many sects and, and, and factions and denominations and, and, and wars and everything else that comes in the name of God. The, the true church remains unified. It must. Or God is a liar and he is not all powerful. It must because Christ is interceding for it. And when he intercedes, it's different than you and I interceding, right? We pray. We hope it happens. We hope it's according to the will of God. And we even pray your will be done. When Christ prays, it is the will of God and it will be done. Does that make sense? So the church must be unified because Christ is praying for its unity and God is the one that unifies it. So all believers are unified with one another because of the intercessory work of Christ. Jesus unifies us. And it's not going to be any sort of mechanical thing that we do that's going to create unity, uh, the, 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 the visible unity. Does that make sense? It's the Spirit of God that will make the unity and the Spirit of God is dependent upon the Word of God And he will use the word of God to create unity in the church. The church will be united through the spirit and through the word. We're unified because of his spirit and because of his word into the body of Christ. And Christ is always focused on internals. That's what I'm saying. You should know that as a believer. Christ is focused on internals, not the externals. He always is. The spirit, the belief, the faith, the character of the person. Anybody can fake it on the outside. Anybody can pretend to be something, right? We do it every Halloween We do it at our jobs sometimes. Anybody can dress up like something and pretend to be something they're not. And many people come every Sunday dressed up like a Christian, but they are not. Now, again, I'm not telling you to figure out who it is and who it isn't. You look at you and go, is the core the real thing? Is the spirit within me? And do I have the fruit that evidences the work of the spirit of God within this body? Or is Sunday morning just another Halloween for you? Dressing up, pretending to be something you're not so you can get stuff in this life. Ephesians 4 talks about the unity of the church. Here's what the church, this is how Paul describes the church. This is it, right here. After talking about the character of Christ and everything that Christ is, Paul describes the church. He says, I, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, in light of all the things we talked about that we're not going to talk about this morning, but basically what Christ has done, to walk. It means to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, in light of everything that Christ has done, the grace, the mercy, the kindness you've been shown through the blood of Jesus Christ, live Live as if you are what you say you are. Walk worthy means according to the measure. According to the measure of Christ. Here's what Christ is. You say you're like him. Live it. Walk worthy of that calling. And here's what it looks like. Notice it doesn't say walk worthy of that calling. Go to church. Pray prayers. Go to Sunday school. Uh, make sure your kids are homeschooled. That, that's not what it says, right? You want to know what it looks like to walk worthy of Christ? Live in all humility. Complete Humility. All humility means humility according to the standard that Christ was humble. So you're always going to be failing, getting back up, and shooting towards that level of humility. With all gentleness, all patience, all tolerance for one another in love. We tolerate. You're going to sin against me. I'm going to sin against you. It's a given. We're sinners. And as we do that, you tolerate the other person in love. Love covers sin. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit... In the bond of peace. The spirit is going to create unity, whether or not you're on board. You be diligent to preserve that unity. Be an, ad, an advocate of the unity. Be an agent that makes unity and makes peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were in one hope of one calling to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, there's only one. There's one spirit in all of us. There's one body, one church, there's one uh, Lord, Jesus Christ, over all of this. There's one hope that we have, one faith that brings us there, one baptism that causes us to be with Christ, one God who's over all of this and in all of us. There's only one. That is what the church is. And then, oops, I left it out. But, uh, so the church is one. And, and if you keep reading in, in Ephesians 4, he talks about men that he sends to proclaim the truth of God. And as they proclaim the truth of God, it refines us, it changes us, it causes us to be unified in Christ so that we are one. Does that make sense? So there is one body because that's how God makes it happen, and the Spirit does that work, and he creates that oneness, that unity through his word. The next thing we want to see here is this, that Jesus unifies all believers together with God. I know we're flying through this, and there's a lot here that's so good but Jesus, um, So Jesus unifies all believers together with one another. Secondly, Jesus unifies all believers with God. This is major. Because it wouldn't matter what our relationship is with one another if we have no relationship with Him. And it's Christ that unifies us together with God and even allows us to be able to come into His presence and to be part of His family, to be citizens of His kingdom, to be born again, to be children of God. It says that um, Jesus intercedes for believers, in verse 21 here, so that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. That's huge. The unity that Christ prays for is not just that our relationships will be unified through humility and gentleness and kindness and tolerance and love, but he unites us together with God, that we may be in him, that we may be together with Christ and with God. Now, this is not some sort of, I mean, you know, I was telling the youth this. It's, we are wrapped up in the Trinity, in this intercessory work, and, and, and God bringing us to Him, and, and, and we're together with Him, but we're not part of it at the same time. Does that make sense? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that is the Trinity. And we are linked to Him in His love through the blood of His Son, but we are not like co, co-Trinitarian people with Him. Does that make sense? I just Don't go too far with it, but, but, but at the same time, we, we, we can't explain it. If you go too far, it's like, we're, well, we're made God and we're together in the Trinity with Him. That's, that's, that's heresy. But at the same time, I mean, we are linked with Him. We are made co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We inherit the inheritance that only Christ deserves. We're called children of God, brethren of Christ. We have the Spirit of God in us eternally that links us to God in, in, in a tighter relationship than we could comprehend in this present life. And at the same time, He is... Above and, and beyond us. But He unifies us together with God. I think this unity with God is just is simply defined as the Spirit that He gives to us. And this is something we see all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was, it, was, it was proclaimed to happen in the future. He says, I will put my Spirit within you. And what the Spirit in you will do is cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. In other words, God promised Israel hundreds of years before Christ ascended and then sent the Spirit, that He was going to put His Spirit, God's Spirit, within them, and that, that gift would, would make them, would cause them to obey. It's the, the work of the Spirit within them that would cause them to obey, cause them to repent, cause them to be uh, faithful. In John 14, in the context of what we're reading today, uh, uh, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And then he says that he may be with you forever. Jesus is about to leave. He's about to go and ascend to heaven. But, he's like, but he tells them, I will never leave you and I'm going to send another helper to be with you forever. He defines that helper as the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him because it doesn't see or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be still future because he has not ascended to heaven yet. He will be in you. And then John 14, he says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. If you are born again, you are unified to God by God. He puts his Spirit within you. The Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the Holy Spirit, however you want to describe it. God comes and dwells within us and unites us to him. We are sealed by the Spirit of God. We are, we are unified with God now through the Spirit. Nothing can snatch us out of His hands. Nothing can take us from God. It wasn't your obedience that got you there, and it's not your disobedience that takes you away. It's the Spirit of God that calls you to Him, that seals you in Him, and makes sure that you are forever united with Him, both in heaven and when He returns for all eternity here on this earth. That's the work of the Spirit. And those are the promises of God. That's the new covenant. That's what we have through the blood of Christ. That's what makes all of this unity possible. And that's what guarantees that His children are forever unified in Him, both in this present sinful age and for all eternity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells within us, and therefore we have unity together with God. And we reflect the unified nature and character of God. What God is, we should look like that. We love like he loves, and our character should reflect that unity. Finally, Jesus unifies all believers purposefully to reveal himself to the world. It's not just about unity, it's not just about peace, so we feel good or we feel peace. In fact, I mean, this whole feeling of peace, a lot of times you're, you're, when we talk about, well, I feel peace about the situation, you shouldn't feel peace. Many times we feel peace because we're hardening our conscience. Many times we feel peace because we don't understand what he requires. And many times we feel peace because we're finally getting what we want. And we don't even know what the Spirit wants. Just because you feel peace does not at all mean that you are in peace or that you have peace. Right? Peace comes through the Spirit. And peace comes through submission to his word. And peace is seen as we reflect his character and his nature. Minus those things, you shouldn't feel peace as a believer, right? If you're walking in sin, you should feel conviction, guilt. You should feel uh, a pull, some sort of tug. You shouldn't feel okay, right? If you're walking in humility, gentleness, love, and those sort of things, there can be a feeling of peace. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing. It's a gift. But don't think the feeling necessitates that you have it. If you have it, you will feel it. But just because you feel it does not mean that you have it. Peace comes through the Spirit and through submission uh, to Him in His Word. Jesus unifies all believers purposefully to reveal Himself to the world. It says here that Jesus intercedes for us so that the wor- uh, and, and unifies us so that the world may believe that you sent me. There's a purpose in the unity. Jesus requires unity and He prays for unity because unity is an instrument and a tool that He uses to draw His children to Himself through the witness of the church. In other words when we, when we uh, have disunity, disharmony, dissension, those sort of things, we are uh, assaulting the gospel. And, and, and we're doing the opposite of the will of God. And we have to understand this. This is why unity is so important. A unified church will reflect the nature and character of Jesus Christ himself. And that, that reflection of his love and his humility and those things that unite will be a beacon of light to the lost sheep that are in the world that will see that unity and will be drawn to Him, not to you, right? They see our good works and are drawn to Him. They glorify Him on the day of visitation, not us. But they should see that unity and that should just be a light of Christ to those who, again, belong to Him before the foundation of the world and are being called by the Spirit. As they see that unity, they will, be, they will go, that looks like my Lord and be drawn to Him for salvation. This is very important. We must be unified and we must preserve unity in the bond of peace because this is what becomes uh, the, 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 the light of Christ to the world. It's not a superficial unity. You cannot ever, in anything, accomplish the will of the holy God with plans of the depraved mind. But we do that a lot, right? We come up with some method, some means, getting people into the church, come up with some sort of unity so people will think that we have this, this bond when we really don't, right? And again, I know I've mentioned it, and I don't need to dive into it, but there's this whole movement called the Ecumenical Movement. And if you don't know anything about it, it's basically just trying to unite all the, it, it started with just trying to unite all the Abrahamic religions. You know, you got, you got uh, Islam and, and Judaism and Christianity, and they were like, hey, listen, we all worship the same God, just different names, let's unify, you know what I mean? That's where that whole coexist sticker started. But then it's like, well, if we're going to unify those three, why don't we just unify them all? And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you got coexist in a thousand different varieties now, trying to unify all these different religions that have no unity whatsoever. If, if nothing else, Christianity definitely proclaims that, that that nothing else can stand with it. So we become the the bad guy. But but even within the Christian faith, you got this ecumenical thing where we try to to, to unite under the gospel, but we can't actually define exactly what that gospel is. Or we try to unite under love and under you know, something else. And, 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 but, but you can't do this in, in a man-made way. In the same way that you, you, can't, you can't do a lot of things uh, that are of God in a superficial way. We have to do God's things in God's ways. The unity that attracts the child of God is the unity that is founded upon the truth of His revealed word. In other words, it's the Word of God that sanctifies the child of God. And holiness is what attracts the children of God. There's a, there's a huge thing in, our, in the church culture today that you, you want to uh, uh, use the culture or imitate the culture to draw people from the culture to Christ. And that's, like that's again, taking a man-made thing and, and, and doing the opposite of what God wants to accomplish God's will. It's like saying uh, we, we have to lie in order to f- in, end in truth, you know? Or we have to cheat in order to finally get to honesty. It makes no sense. That's, that's a depraved way of thinking. We live holy lives and speak holy words so that those who are called by his name will be drawn to him through the holiness that is heard in our lips and lived in our lives. That's it. That's God's method and that's his way. It's adherence and submission to the truth of God's word that teaches us and sanctifies us and unites us in this supernatural way. And that is what will draw the children of God to him. It's not going to be through manipulation. You know, we can't take our youth group and rename it. Uh, I should have, this is a bad example because I didn't think of it ahead of time, but can't rename it something like, you know, like revolution, you know, and be like, now we'll attract kids to come listen to Jesus. Those who are going to come, they're going to come because they, they're, they're, they're broken in their sin. They see that They're missing Christ, and they're going to be drawn through truth and through holiness. That's how he works. That's how he finds his children. 1 Peter 2.9, describing the church again, Peter tells us that, that, he says, look, you're a chosen race. You're chosen by God. You're a people group together, a royal priesthood. You come from the king, and you're, you're, you're uh, retaining the standard of God's word. You are a holy nation. You are set apart and distinct from this world. You're a people of God's own possession. You're his. And here's why. You're all those things, so that anytime you see, so that that's always the purpose, all right? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the purpose. You exist if you are born again to open your mouth and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And your own life, the own, the transformation He's done within you, should be a, a, a gleaming example of His work, right? I was this. I was in darkness. I was sinful. I was, you can name a thousand things you were. But through what Christ did on the cross, he has now caused me to be, and then fill in the blank. And all of those things should be characteristics of him. I'm more humble now. I'm more patient now. I'm honest now. I try to speak truth now. Every time I sin now, I I openly confess that sin rather than try to hide that sin. And I get back up and I repent of that sin. That's what looks like Christ. That is the humility and the, and the holiness that Christ expressed, and that's what his children express. And in doing so, we attract the children of God that are still out in the world. I mean, you ought to, you ought to know that in your own life. Everyone in here, if you are born again, came to Christ in two, two ways. First, someone faithfully opened their mouth and spoke Christ to you, whether that was your pastor, whether it's your mom and dad, whether that was a friend, a, a small group leader, whatever it may be. Someone opened their mouth and told you about Jesus Christ. Because you cannot come to that understanding on your own. Or someone handed you his word. Someone was faithful to give you the truth. And then the other thing, and I bet you would agree with me, is you saw someone live it. And that drew you. Right? You see someone that has faithfulness. You know that you're not faithful. And you're drawn to that. You see someone that speaks with integrity and truthfulness and honesty and you know that you're a liar and you don't want that and you're drawn to that. You see someone that expresses gentleness and patience and kindness and you know how impatient you are and intolerant you are of other people's uh, uh, sins and, and, and shortcomings and you're drawn to that. That's what children of God do. The truth brings us to Him and the reflection of Christ in the lives of His children draws us to want to be more like Him. We don't want to be like someone else. We want to be like Christ and we see pieces of Christ in the faithful body of Christ. And that's what unites us and that's what makes us want to be like Him. On the negative side of that, you have to understand then that dissension and divisions and disunity are dangerous. They're bad. Division distracts believers from doing the work of Christ because we're focused on our hatred of one another, right? Disunity dishonors the name of Christ. And it's a disease to the body of Christ. Anytime there's disunity like that, it always dishonors His name. Dissension defies the will of God and the prayers of Christ. Because Christ is always praying for unity. And if you are in the work of splitting apart, then you are actively engaged against the will of God and Christ's intercessory prayer for His body. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Discord disgraces the spirit of Christ that is within us. Christ is within us. Christ is working within us to produce His nature and His character because He is interested in finding His children through our faithful lives. And when we engage in discord, in the body of Christ, amongst the brethren, then we disgrace his name. And we're acting against his nature that he's producing within us. It's like Galatians talks about, right? The things of the flesh and the things of the spirit cannot coincide, they are always at enmity with one another. It even says there that the things of the spirit are evident. Discord, dissension, and factions are right there in the middle of the list. And he says, anyone who practices these things will never inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be engaged. In this activity, and then think you're doing the will of God, or even think you're with God. You can fight him for a little while, but God is a wonderful father. And he disciplines his children, right? We sin, we all sin. And we can walk in sin even for a while as a Christian. But eventually our Father stops it because He loves us and He won't let us remain there. Uh, disharmony destroys the witness of Christ and the lives of those who choose to rebel against His will. Disunity is always the result of a lack of humility, submission, and love. Christ creates unity in His church. He does it through the expression of His nature and His character as we submit to what His Word says. Therefore, any time there's disunity, there's a lack of submission to God, there's a lack of humility towards one another and towards Christ, and there's a lack of love, both of our brethren and of God. If you cannot love your brother who you see, you do not love God, right? John says that very clearly. So we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that we can create dissension, discord, disunity, disharmony, that we can not love one another. If if you withhold mercy from another anybody, but especially someone within the body of Christ, I mean, you go read Matthew 18. You have been shown unending mercy. How could you ever find another human being who is another recipient of that mercy of God and not give them mercy? You have been shown unending forgiveness for an unending list of sins. How could you not forgive your brother who sins against you a minuscule amount of times, even if it's a lifetime, right? We must preserve unity. Disunity is never the agent that God prescribes to create unity. Now hear that. That's a huge thing. God might use disunity to create purity within the church. And and you see that happen over and over again in the church. But he creates that unity by severing the divisive and diseased member of the body. But he will never sanction that, that person to create discord so that unity happens. That would be like Pharaoh bragging that he was an agent of creating Israel. He was. But that is not a noble or loyal thing, right? It would be like Judas bragging about the fact that he sent Christ to the cross and that resulted in the salvation of all the world. But that's backwards. Judas will be judged according to what he has done. But that doesn't mean that Christ or God won't use wickedness to create good for those who love him or are called by his name, but don't be the agent, don't be the person that creates the dissension. That is a terrifying, terrifying place to be. J.C. Ryle says it like this, he says, how often Christians have wasted their strength contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and the devil, let no man think lightly, as some seem to do, of schism, or count it a small thing to multiply sects, parties, and denominations. These very things, we may depend, so we, we have these things, we depend on them, they only help divide and damage the cause of Christ. And look at this. He goes on to say in the, in the, in the, same, uh, in the same book, Let rabid zealots, who delight in sect-making and party-forming, rail at us and denounce us if they please. We need not mind them. Don't even pay attention to them. Let them go. So long as we have Christ and a good conscience, let us patiently hold on our way. Follow the things that make for peace. Strive to promote unity. It was not for nothing that our Lord prayed so fervently that his people might be one. Strive for unity. And let those who cause discord and dissension go. Remember, your father is a good father. If they are his, he will take care of them, right? Just like he took care of you as you were barreling down the road of hell. Did he find you? Yes. Did he take care of you? Yes. Even as a Christian, as you sin, does he convict you? Yes. Does he always draw you back? Yes. Does he always reveal your sin? Yes. Because he is a good father. And he loses none of his sheep. And he's very concerned about your purity. In fact... Every good work he begins, he perfects until the day of Christ. Because he is going to give to his, his son, the, 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 the Lamb of God, he is going to give him a perfect bride. But do not be engaged in the dissension or in the dissentious group. We must both proclaim and live forgiveness, proclaim and live mercy. How can we proclaim the forgiveness of Christ? When we cannot forgive our brother, right? How can we tell others about the mercy and the kindness of God if we ourselves are not showing mercy and kindness to others? How can we talk about grace and love when His grace and love are not reflected in our own character and in our own actions and in our relationships? That's an affront to Christ. The world is not stupid, they may be blind, but they're not naive. They can smell hypocrisy just as well as you and I can. In fact, that's what they they use against the church all the time. I would go, but it's a bunch of hypocrites. So don't be. You're a sinner, but don't be a hypocrite. I always tell my my girls uh, that the difference between a Christian and a hypocrite is the Christian confesses their sin and fights their sin, and the hypocrite hides their sin. The Christian fights their sin, the hypocrite hides their sin. The Christian wants to be done with that. They sin the same way. They both lie. They both cheat. They both steal. They both think bad things, make curse and whatever. But the Christian hates it. The Christian will fight it. The Christian wants purity and the Christian wants Christ. The hypocrite hides it because he's only concerned that you think he looks like Christ. Does that make sense? There is no hiding with God. You can only hide things from one another. The Christian fights their sin. The hypocrite hides their sin. There's nothing more detrimental to the gospel than a Christian who preaches truth but has no resolve to practice it. The final, the final word here at the very end, and we're not going into this. I just want to sum it up with his words. But he repeats himself, and look what he says. He says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That's the Holy Spirit. The glory that Christ gives to the Son, the Spirit of God, he gives to the church. He says, and here's why. He gives the Spirit to us that, the, that we may be one. Just as we, speaking of him and his father, are one, I and them and you and me. So there's a, a union there, both in the body of Christ and the body of Christ with him, that they may be perfected in unity. That's what he's doing. The church is being perfected in unity. The church will be perfected in unity. The church is always being perfected in unity. Why? And here's the purpose again it's evangelism. So that the world may know that you sent me. Our unity, our peace, our love for one another, the mercy you show within the body of Christ, the kindness and the love and the gentleness and the patience, the tolerance. The forgiving one another. All of those things that happen within the body of Christ are a reflection of the nature of Jesus Christ. And they are a tool he uses to find his lost sheep. It is very important that we love one another and that we show mercy and kindness and forgiveness. If nothing else, if there was only one point, but there's other reasons why we would do that, it's so that we do not become a reproach to the gospel in the name of Christ and the children of God are drawn to him through our faithful, holy living, our love for one another. He says, and, and the world will see that I love them even as you have loved, or I'm sorry, that God the Father loved them even as you have loved me. That the the world needs to see the love of God in the way that we treat one another. And in doing so, they will see the love that God has for Christ, that Christ has for us, in sending his son to die for us, even while we were sinners, even while we were his enemies. So, unity is very important, Right? Don't let anything divide us. Divide you with your spouse, you with your children, you with the people in your small group, you with the people here in the body of Christ. We forgive unending. We show mercy unending. We're humble. We're patient. We're kind. We're gentle. We tolerate the sins of one another. Don't ever, ever say, we're all Christians. We shouldn't sin against each other. We're all Christians. We will sin against each other. And you must tolerate and love one another. Right? Strive for unity. Let's pray.